The following episode contains recreated scenes based on FBI investigative reports, wiretaps, and suspect interviews. It's the early 70s in Kuwait City. Young Ramsey Youssef climbs a flagpole atop his elementary school. As he rises, he can see the distant luxury high-rises built for wealthy Kuwaitis and Western oil executives. Closer, he can see the neighborhood where he grew up, among oil derricks pumping riches from the desert, a neighborhood of Palestinian refugees. Throughout his childhood, Yusuf heard stories of the suffering of Palestinians at the hands of Israelis. He pulls himself up the flagpole, 10 feet, 20 feet, 25 feet. Then he tears the Kuwaiti flag from the pole and watches it sail away. Years later, 24-year-old Ramzi Youssef can be found in Camp Calden, Afghanistan, a one-stop shop for guerrilla warfare funded by the CIA. It's run by the Mujahideen. Like many young Muslim men, Youssef came here to fight a holy war against the Soviet invaders. But now the Soviets have left, and many of these men have lost their purpose. The feeling is, when the Soviets fled, the U.S. abandoned their cause and left Afghanistan in ruin. But Yusuf learned something here. He tinkered with remote detonators and timing devices. He read the chemical dictionary front to back ten times. And he found his calling. Bomb making. I'm Mark Smerling, and you're listening to Operation Trade Bomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. Who are these people that tried to kill me? Every Sunday, individuals from the mosque go to Long Island for firearms uh, training and then are sent to Afghanistan to fight with the Mujahideen. Militant rabbi Meyer Kahani was gunned down as he made a speech at a Manhattan hotel. The guy holding the uh, the AK-47 is my nemesis, actually, Mahmoud Abu Halima. And uh, he had gone to Afghanistan several times. When I was visiting Zaid Nusser, he was asking for the bombs and things like that. He says, we need to make 12 pipe bombs to send a message. Mohammed Salama wanted to marry my sister someday when she was old enough because he was just so close to the family. In September, a guy named Ramzi Yosef shows up who says, 12 pipe bombs? No, we're going to make a real bomb. My name is Jan Gilhuli, and during the 90s, I was a special agent in the United States Secret Service. The beginning of the day on February 26th was, was very, very interesting because along with Special Agent Brenda Rossillo and Special Agent Scott Allswang, we were due to attend a meeting at the FBI regarding the Joint Terrorism Task Force. En route to the meeting, we were notified that there was a suspicious package at one police plaza that had been addressed to Barbara Bush and 
it was being housed in the chief of detectives office and they were in fact going through it now with their bomb squad so we were immediately diverted to police headquarters and this was you know approximately nine o'clock in the morning we made our way to the chief of detectives office we stayed a safe distance away along with the chief of detectives and one of the bomb squad men came out and looked at the chief of detectives with a puzzled look and he said chief this smells like crap as soon as he said that i knew it was crap and there was a fellow in new york city who was one of the people who we kept a close watch upon this gentleman would take every bodily fluid every bodily excretion put it into a baggie label it and eventually mailed all this to mrs bush and I said, well, it's up to you, fellas. We have everything we need. We'll see you. And we left. Agent Gilhooly and his two partners jump into their cruiser at One Police Plaza to make the five-minute drive to the World Trade Center. The Secret Service field office in New York City was housed in Six World Trade Center. About the time that Gilhooly starts his journey back to the Secret Service field office, a Yellow Rider rental van pulls into the parking garage beneath Six World Trade Center. It makes its way to parking level B2 and stops in a no parking zone. Inside is Ramsey Youssef. He holds four containers of nitroglycerin. Now he carries them into the back of the van and places them inside four cardboard boxes each containing 300 pounds of urea nitrate. He attaches a 20-foot fuse, nitrocellulose wrapped in cellophane, smokeless, undetectable. Ramsey lights the fuse. Seven minutes, six minutes, 59 seconds, six minutes, 58 seconds. Ramsey jumps out of the van and into a waiting Chevy Corsica. The Corsica speeds up the ramp. Ramsey can see sunlight ahead. Five minutes, 45 seconds. Suddenly, a truck pulls in front of the Corsica. The truck stops, and the driver gets out to talk to the garage attendant. Four minutes, 50 seconds. Ramsey leans over and honks the horn, gently at first, then insistently. Three minutes. The truck finally moves, and the Corsica peels out of the garage, passing Agent Gilhooly and his partners driving into the garage. Two minutes. The Secret Service parking garage was on the B2 level. We pulled inside the gates where our secure parking area was. I got out of the car first. Special Agent Rosillo was behind me about 40 feet. Special Agent Allswang was backing the car into this really tight spot. As I looked up, there was a yellow van about 60 feet away from me. This van was just there. there it, it wasn't moving. I didn't see a driver. The Chevy Corsica drives away from the towers. It's snowing now. Ramsey Yusuf checks his watch and turns to look up. Five, four, three, two, one. 
blew up in my face. One nanosecond later, I was 60 feet away, on my back watching a fireball go over me. You go unconscious immediately, and I was pretty sure that I was dead. My wife at the time was terminally ill. I had, you know, to make sure that I was going to get home to her because she had just come back from the hospital and was getting ready to go back again. And I thought, how interesting, my wife is dying and I'm dead. When I came to, I was sure that I'd lost my eye and my chest had been compressed such as, is that I had six broken ribs. I knew where Agent Rosillo had been behind me. She was wedged underneath a car. She had a lot of glass shards that had penetrated her legs. We both realized that we couldn't hear because in the explosion I lost both my eardrums. There's, there's a nothingness to it. It starts coming back and then you hear kind of low tone sounds and conversational tones. And then it returns. We then heard Agent Allswang calling out our names and trying to find us. We then crawled to meet him. When we met up with him, he looked at me with the most puzzled look on his face and he said, did I do that? He thought he backed into a gas main or something. He said, no, no, you did not do that. That was a bomb. We made our way up inside the lobby of the World Trade Center. It was smoke-filled completely, except for two feet off the ground. So in order to breathe, you really had to be down in that two feet. And while you're there, all you see is all these other legs running around. We made our way onto Vesey Street. And there was a cab coming by with people right on DC Street. We stopped the cab, asked the passengers to get out, and we got in the cab. And I said to him, you know, take us to Beekman downtown, which is the closest hospital down there. The cab driver said, I can't move. People won't get out of the way. And I told him, drive on the sidewalk. He drove up on the sidewalk and people just parted like you wouldn't believe. And I said, that's a, that's a New York thing. Same car in the street, they won't get out of your way. Put that car on a sidewalk, people will get out of the way. And we then made our way to Beekman Hospital. We were the first ones there, and both Scott and I helped Brenda, and I'm still holding on to my eyeball, I believe. And I asked them, I said, do you have a disaster plan? They said, yes. I said, get it out. So I had surgery that afternoon by about 2.30. Amazingly enough, they removed a piece of metal from the orbit of my eye. It never touched my eyeball. Basically, for want of a better description, it stapled my eyelid to the top of the orbit in my eye, and that's where all the pain was. They wanted me to stay in the hospital because I had a concussion, and I signed myself out against medical advice because I had to get home to my wife. I said, I'll be home in a couple hours, don't worry about it. And I always think it just wasn't my day to die.
I felt this heave. The whole building rose. Charles Makish, the director of the World Trade Center, was in his office on the 35th floor when the bomb exploded. And I looked out the window. I saw a ripple go across the Hudson River. I said, that's odd. And then the next thing I knew, all the bells and whistles went off. I knew about casualties within the first hour. They had set up a temporary morgue in the tall ship's bar. And we had the bodies of those that were killed. I knew these people. They were my staff. Five of the seven people that were killed were Port Authority employees, which were at the B2 level. The people that were the, the sort of the, the the guts of the trade center, the, the, the people guts, I say. They, they took care of it. They, you know, they ran it, they operated it, they cared for it. Uh, they were phenomenal people, absolutely phenomenal people. I mean, this was family. Monica Smith. Monica was the administrative assistant in the operations office in the B2 level of the trade center. Uh, Monica was a very, very pretty girl. She, um, she met Eddie. Eddie was a salesman at the Trade Center when he was selling to the operations people. He would come down, and they, they got married. And Eddie became a family man. Monica was seven months pregnant when, when she was killed in the Trade Center in 93. They're emblazoned in my memory. That night, I spent on the phone in the hotel, and I I didn't get any sleep. I got a call from the executive director, and he said to me, "Um, you're meeting Governor Cuomo. And I met Governor Cuomo out on VIP Drive. It's the first time I had ever met the governor. And he got out of a black Chrysler. And he looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, I'm the director of the World Trade Center. He said, oh, you're the man I'm going to fire. I looked at him. I said, fire? He says, yeah, if you can't manage a transformer explosion, he said, you don't belong in this job. I said, Governor, who told you it was a transformer explosion? He said, well, that's what's all over the news. He said, that's what my people are telling me. Okay. I said, Governor, you're an attorney, right? And he said, yes. I said, well, why don't you withhold judgment until I show you what I'm going to show you? He said, okay, wise guy. So we walked in uh, the West Street entrance of the Trade Center and walked towards the B2 stairwell. And the water was still coming down the stairs, you know. And there was a, his advanced man, his name was Pepitone. And Pepitone said to me, he's not going to get his shoes wet, is he? I looked at Pepitone. I said, why? He said, well, his grandfather was a shoemaker, and he's, he's very particular about his shoes. I said, no, he won't get his shoes wet. I walked him into water up to his ankles. We got to the B2 level. The door had been blown open, and there was a piece of steel sitting there, the cross bracing of the uh, exterior wall, which weighed 16,000 pounds. And I said to the governor, I said, Governor, you see that piece of steel? He said, yeah. I said, 
That was 75 feet away on the exterior of the World Trade Center south wall. The force of this explosion propelled that through the lunchroom that killed five of my people. The terrorists actually chose the wrong spot. When the bomb went off, it basically blew all of the cinder block and all of the concrete. It blew it out, but it left standing those large columns. I mean, the building swayed a little. It wasn't going to topple. The whole crater was lit. The FBI and ATF had already set up what would be stadium lights, lights that you would see in a, in a baseball stadium. The crater was half the size of a football field, and there was still smoke. We got to the edge of the crater, and he looked at it, and he said, this wasn't a transformer explosion. And I looked at him, I said, Gov, no shit. is another weapon that's used against you. And that's what terrorists are all about, if these were terrorists. Following the explosion, I spoke with New York's Governor Mario Cuomo and New York City Mayor David Dinkins to assure them that the full measure of federal law enforcement resources will be brought to bear on this investigation. They say it had to be a bomb. Looks like a bomb, it smells like a bomb, it's probably a bomb. We're back where we began this story, across the Hudson River on the shores of Jersey City. Ramsey Youssef watches heavy black smoke rise from the World Trade Center. Later that night, Mohammed Salome drives Ramsey to Kennedy Airport. Just before getting out of the car, Ramsey warns Salome to leave the country as soon as possible. Pulling away from the curb, Salome makes a fateful decision. To call the rider rental facility where he rented the van that delivered the explosives. He's broke, and he needs the rental deposit back so he can buy a plane ticket to flee the country. That's next time on Operation Trade Bomb. The guy who rented the truck, uh, Mohammed guy, he had already started calling saying the truck was stolen and he wanted his $200 back. This has a confidential VIN number on it. This has to be from the vehicle that brought the bomb in. And you gotta imagine how much disasters would be created if the World Trade Center collapsed. Operation Trade Bomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. Zach Goldbaum is our senior producer. This episode of Operation Trade Bomb was produced by Kenny Kusiak, Alexa Burke, Michael May, Meher Ahmad, and Alessandro Santoro. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling. John Liebman is our executive producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Bridget Busa is our associate producer. Sound design is by Kenny Kusiak with help from Alexa Burke and Alessandro Santoro. George Draping Hicks did the mix. Music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Momentum by Kenny Kusiak. Production legal by Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa at the Nord Group. Legal review by Linda Steinman, Abigail Everdell, and Alison Cherie at Davis Wright Tremaine. 
fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. The production would like to thank Nuha Musla, Amr Latif, Ruhan Ahmed, Latisha Naidu, Ahmed Fateha, Hiba Afifi, Juan Bernardo Custodio, and Evan Pishan. Please listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to write a review. Thank you.